Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, my guest tells me the five things they would choose from their life to preserve in a time capsule. They pick four things they treasure, and one they would like to be rid of, by burying it in the ground and never having to think about it again. Doing that in this episode is the DJ, author, and television presenter, Nikki Campbell. Nicky was adopted at four days old and brought up in Edinburgh. After graduating from the University of Aberdeen, he started working writing jingles for North Sound Radio, where he was quickly promoted to become the presenter of The Breakfast Show. This brought him to the attention of Capital Radio in London, and then BBC Radio One, where in 1987 he started presenting a Saturday night show, before, only a year later, taking over the early morning show from Simon Mayo. He must have been exhausted. He also presented a music and interview show called Into the Night. In 1994, he took over the Drive Time show and then moved to the Afternoon show. But he left Radio 1 in 1997 and joined BBC Radio 5 Live as presenter of the Mid-Morning show and now The Breakfast Show. Yes, he's been about, hasn't he? And in the process, he's won seven Sony Awards, including a Gold Award. Meanwhile, on TV, he presented the game show Wheel of Fortune and regularly hosted Top of the Pops and, of course, Watchdog. He currently presents The Big Questions on BBC One and the BAFTA and Royal Television Society award-winning Long Lost Family with Davina McCall on ITV. He's written the books Blue-Eyed Son about his adoption and his latest book, a biography called One of the Family, which is also the title of his podcast. So let's hear the delightful Nicky Campbell and the five things he wants to put in a time capsule. Nikki, welcome to my time capsule. We're going to talk about five things from your life that you'd like to put into a time capsule. That's it. Mm. Is that it? That's it. That's it. Oh. It's that simple. Goodness me. Oh. <laughs> Where do I start? You know, it's it's wonderful to be here, and it's like a blank sheet of paper, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I can just choose something and go for it and riff around it, and you can talk and I can listen. 
Yeah. Yes. Although yeah. mostly you talk and I listen. Oh, okay. I hope. Okay. Right. All right. Is this number one? First thing in. Well, um, I think it would have to be my first dog, Candy. Yes, I've read your book, One of the Family, about your dog, Maxwell. But also you mentioned Candy in that book. So this is a dog you had when you were a very small child. When I was adopted and I joined the Campbell family, the son of a nurse from Dublin who had come over and had her child adopted. I was the second adoption within 18 months, the second baby she had had within 18 months. And she was obviously, circumstances very difficult, and she was a troubled soul, and I met her later on, and that's another story. But when I was adopted, they bought a puppy from next door. And what had happened is that Judy, the mother of the puppy we got was living next door and she, she was living with us my parents termed them we had a terraced house in edinburgh and there's wooden fencing and my parents termed the people next door the academics so they were the academics next door <laughs> and they had the edinburgh university lad and so they had a, pup, a puppy and dad said over my dead body apparently we're not having a puppy we're not having a puppy and i think my sister being five years old when i was adopted her nose was somewhat put out of joint so i think what happened is they said well get a Fiona a puppy, and we've got a baby, and we're in a lovely, happy family. It was wonderful. I had the best parents and the best family ever. Mm. But I think I came into the house when I was about four months old. After being in a kind of, there was a holding period before I went. I, I left my birth mother at nine days, and then it was about 12, 13, 14 weeks or something like that. Then I was in, and I was a Campbell, bedecked in tartan evermore. <laughs> and I... So I had a puppy, and this puppy I bonded with. It was my sibling. Candy was my sibling. I didn't realise that he was canine or that I was human or that we were different species. He's just, we did everything together. We crawled together. We sniffed together. We played together. I was forever in his company, and we absolutely adored each other. And I think as he grew up and I grew up, I felt a real kindred spirit as well. And... um, he was extraordinary. We, I mean, he taught me a whole lot. He taught me to sniff whenever anyone came through the front door, knew any of my parents' friends. We would sniff them together. <laughs> and that was terrible for my parents because sometimes it was, we sniffed sensitive areas. And this is embarrassing. <laughs> you know, right, if you're an adult, it's embarrassing. Your child goes up to the door and starts sniffing your bottle. Well, it is if Candy lived to the age of 21 and you kept doing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still do it, even though he's gone, uh-huh. um, whoever arrives at the end. Yeah. But also, we were so close. We were wrestling and play fighting all the time. And mum used to tell the story of stories of I'd be on the in the living room at the front and we'd be play fighting with each other and the doorbell would ring and there'd be a woman there saying, oh, your little boy's been mauled by a dog. <laughs> and mum would say, yes, thank you very much indeed. Bye. And she knew exactly what was going on. So he was incredible. He was incredible. He never went on holiday with us, though, because Dad said he couldn't come on holiday with us because he worried sheep. Mm. Candy, not Dad. (laughs) uh, So I missed him on holidays. And so when I came back, after one holiday, he'd been in kennels, and I came home, and Mum was waiting for me, and he didn't 
he wasn't looking at me in the room upstairs and he, he he wasn't jumping down i thought oh maybe he's he's run down already and i went in it was all dark and mum said he he was he took ill at the kennels and dad had to take him to the vet and he was he was put to sleep so it's a terrible moment in my life and when i tell that story i i, I still feel that i was there at that moment i can you know that memory thing might mm. you just you're, you're through that time tunnel and you're completely transported and you're back in that place and it's it's a physical feeling of being there and uh, it was a tr- terrible day terrible day i had to take the day off school the next day and uh, i wanted to put an announcement in the scotsman i remember flicking through the paper and seeing my beloved brother this and you know f- f- forever remembered never forgotten mm. uh, at peace family member so i thought well he's a family member why can't i put that but i was um dissuaded from doing so but it was utterly devastating it's it's funny when a I think I felt guilty that I wasn't there. He couldn't see me. I, he couldn't see that I loved him when he went. He was all on his mm. own in a kennel. I think that the loss of a dog to whom you'd be so close is it's absolutely devastating at any point in life because there's something about the innocence and the lack of the lack of understanding and the fact that you I don't know, there's there's a purity and there's an innocence about animals. It's something that strikes very, very deep inside, right at the heart of you. There's something about Especially in adulthood, there's an allowance to cry when a when a dog dies, when your dog mm. dies. I mean, there's very special animals and special creatures, but there's especially for men, there's a, there's a kind of license to let it all go and let it all out. Whereas if your if your parent dies at funeral, you've got to you've got to keep kind of keep it together. Do you think it it's together. because of the unquestioning nature of their love, an animal? And I don't have any doubt that there is love and devotion from these animals. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very interested in evolutionary biology. And if you look at that continuum, you look at the great apes, I mean, they mourn, Mm -hmm. um, they clearly show emotions, they show empathy. I think this, our understanding of animals is still incredibly superficial. Uh, I'm not saying that newts show emotion, but I think the higher mammals, of which we are one, definitely show emotion. I, think, I don't think that's in question. And they are reflective and they're self-aware. If you look at elephants, are a very good example, have a huge emotional range. They mourn their dead, they line up and touch their dead one by one and they usher for the young to do just the same thing like it's a kind of ritual. It's absolutely fascinating. Mm. They do never forget. They are reflective animals. If they're put into captivity, they dwell on it. They dwell on what was. They dwell on that life with you know, their family with their mother, those terrible baby elephants that are taken from Zimbabwe into cold Chinese zoos and taken from... Oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. terrible, it's terrible. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think that's in doubt. I think dogs, further down the phylogenetic scale, if you like, but the same as pigs. You know, pigs are emotional and certainly to an extent self-aware animals. I think with dogs, uh, it has been scientifically proven that when you look at them and when you love them, they feel exactly the same about you because the same biochemistry is happening. Mm. Their oxytocin levels go up and our oxytocin levels go up. And I think that's a really good uh, objective test of emotional response because we have exactly the same biochemistry as the great apes and uh, as elephants and as dogs. And when the same things happen, when we get the same threats, when we get the same happiness and the same joy, we feel there will be that similar physical feeling. It's like when, you know, when you feel goosebumps. Yeah. That's our primate hair standing on end mm-hmm. to try and make ourselves look bigger and more fearsome. Yeah. That's the hair standing on end. That's a fight or flight thing showing that, you know, it's like you, you see it in dogs. So when you see, you see it happening in dogs, they're feeling what we feel when the goosebumps go up. Mm. So if you, as a child, 
You were made aware very early on, were you, that you were adopted? You were always told that. From the word go, yeah. Did it lead you to feel that maybe uh, people's expressions of love weren't complete because you weren't worthy of it? That's it. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it because I was meant to be somebody else and I wasn't mm. an entirely fully paid up member. Although, I, I mean, people who adopt often say, oh, I had an amazing family. And, and I've worked with a lot of people on the show I do on ITV, Long Lost Family. And I, I can kind of, some people this is, I can kind of smell it when they say, oh, but I had a great mum and dad, and had a great family. And they're kind of saying it as a defence mechanism. I really did. I mean, my mum and dad were extraordinary. I could not have been in a happier home. They're extraordinary. My mum was a social worker. My dad was a publisher of maps. They were great people. They were loving parents. Mm. They are my real mum and dad. But still you have that thing. And also it's a double-edged sword. We tell someone they're adopted from the word go and they're special, which was very much a la mode at the time. You know, to say you're special is to say that you're different as well. And I felt that kind of imposter syndrome I always have all my life a bit. Am I meant to be me? Right, yes. If I'm so special, why was I rejected? There is that. Yeah, exactly. She was a kind, loving, wise, generous person who made sure I was adopted into a a lovely family. She was such a good person. She was such a good person and I was so special. Why did she want to get rid of me? The dog, of course, never asked that question. Never asked that question. And it's the same with my dog now, Maxwell. When I had my breakdown and I collapsed outside Euston Station a few years back and I was diagnosed Mm. as bipolar after that. And I rang home and I said to Tina what had happened and I was just, I just, you know, everything just fell on top of me and I just dropped to the ground and started weeping. It all got on top of me and I flung my briefcase to one side and I was there just something. I just, it just didn't seem any point anymore. And I, just, I stretched my phone and I rang home and, and Tina said, you know, come home, come and see me, come and see the girls, come and see Maxwell. And I just thought, yes, that's what I need. So I got home and I didn't need to explain anything to him because when you're in that sort of situation, deep, deep in a black moment with your mental health uh, mm. and people say, how are you? Uh, and you've got to you've got to articulate it. Or people say, "What can I get for you?" You have to say it. And by articulating and saying it and trying to verbalize it, you kind of go through it again. And you kind of, it's like a, it's like a, a, a reiteration of how you're feeling. But with a dog, there is that innate kind of understanding. And I lay on the bed, and he jumped up on the bed. I heard this little tinkle of his collar, and he came in and he jumped up on the bed, and he put his head. Uh, on my on my chest, it was like a warm charge through me. And he put his paw on me as well, and I just felt so reassured. And it's not fanciful. It's not. It's not Disney. It's actually Darwin. That's it. It's not Disney. It's Darwin. I'm write that one down. <laughs> because I mean, they detect cancer. They can smell one molecule in a swimming pool. And in order for the pack to function properly they have to know exactly how each member of the pack is feeling and they do that from detecting hormones and detecting emotional state and he done and of course he loves me and i love him and i'm sure he'd done the same with me i swear to my dying day he knew what was going on i know that he knew what was going on and i i know that he knew that he had to make me better mm. he didn't understand it but he kind of understood that he didn't understand i you know i don't know it's, it gets very meta but he he bloody well knew and it was a, just a, a yeah. magical moment a magical time and i think when you have a relationship with a dog close relationship with a dog or an animal it is we can see into the forest because they're they're kind of standing at the door aren't they dogs of one side of the wall and then there's a gate and through the gate there is the wild and they remind us of the wild that we once inhabited and still to an extent i think inhabits us 
but we just don't realize it. We've sloughed a lot of it off, but only superficially. It's it's still there. We still have those instincts and those those reactions to things, but we kind of shroud it all in kind of quasi-intelligence and 21st centuryness. But if we look properly, we can see the forest, you know, and dogs kind of lead us to that forest, the forest where we came from. So I think that's a that's mm. a very special connection as well. Those guttural reactions are that's when we go into the forest, as you say, those moments of absolute bursting of pride in something or madly in love with something or desperately destroyed by the loss of something. So even as a small child coming back from school and your mother there saying, Cat is dead, that never leaves you. Never leaves you. Uh, It never will. It was awful, Mm. awful. I have a picture of him over there and I look at it uh, every day. I didn't have another dog for 35 years. I didn't want to go through that again. It was so devastating at 11 years old to go mm-hmm. through it. Yeah. But the identity thing, just on that, not feeling that you deserve it. At my 10th birthday party, I remember that we were at a hotel in Inverness and there was we were in an alcove and there was fawn leather seats and we had the Scottish high tea and there was a, there was a mountain of ham sandwiches and cakes and I was gurgling into my Coca-Cola bottle. It was a man playing the organ who looked like Elvis Presley. And all of a sudden he struck up happy birthday, in came the cake. And I just burst into tears because I thought, I, this this isn't really for me. Because I didn't, I didn't really belong there and I wasn't worthy of it. And I remember being so upset. Then I remember everybody comforting me. I felt even worse because they were comforting me because I'd... Um, made a spectacle and revealed my feelings of insecurity. And that kind of imposter Mm. thing has stayed with me. Well, I feel like an imposter now because I'm going to say that I'm going to take Candy and put her into a time capsule. Him. Candy was a him with a gender-neutral name, years ahead of his time. Uh, I had a dog called Candy. Did you? Yeah, when I was a boy. We had two dogs called Candy. We had a a female Candy and then we had a male Candy. Why did you call... You had one dog, Candy, and then you had the next dog, Candy. Because I was with a crofting couple that I know very well, and they had this dog they absolutely adored, which was an old sheep dog, which died many years ago now, called Roy. And I'm in there with them, and I say, I remember Roy well. He was such a lovely dog. And then I said, uh, that's, that's a lovely picture of him. And they said, no, that's not Roy. That's Roy. <laughs> <laughs> I said, ah, uh, oh. Well, uh, that's not Roy. And he said, no, no, that's Roy, the dog we had before Roy. And I went, ah. (laughs) So (laughs) what was the dog you had before Roy, before Roy? And they went, oh, we had a lovely dog before Roy. And I said, well, what was that dog called? (laughs) I said, Roy. (laughs) (laughs) So there were a line of Roy's, but they were all different. We had two candies, I'm sorry. Mm. We didn't have three. I do apologise. Anyway, Candy, your lovely candy. So I, I forgot to ask, what breed of dog? It was a Fox Terrier cross because Judy escaped one night, the academics dog, Judy escaped one night, got out there when the heat was on, came back, and then she had puppies. And we had one of them when we had we had candy. It's kind of like, I kind of think of, of it like... Um, a lady in the tramp. <laughs> Do you remember they're they're eating Italian food together on the back of the Italian restaurant? Da, 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 da. One of those Italian romantic songs is playing. It's that. That's what I imagine Judy and her <laughs> paramour pooch would have been like. And Candy was the glorious result. 
Well, she it's forever in your time capsule. That's your first item. Yeah. Lovely. Okay, so what's next? Roy. <laughs> like to... No, not Roy. Um, <laughs> it's a broad bandwidth, this. Mm-hmm. And I know it's something close to your heart as well, but I have to have a radio, a radio, because it has been my bread and butter, specifically from when I was growing up. It was quite rapid from going to university, going to local radio, going to Capital Radio, finding out I was in Radio 1, doing Top of the Pops and all that stuff and travelling the world and playing all those records and seeing all those bizarre people, walking into Jurassic Park and seeing these these incredible people of of legend who started off on the pirate ships. Because I think Simon Mayo and myself and Liz Kershaw and Mark Goodyear, we were the first people, we were the first wave of people at Radio 1 who had kind of professional parents it was a very (laughs) very different generation but my love for radio was deeply ingrained because i discovered when i was 14 15 that it was easy to get onto local radio radio fourth by calling the line and then they put you on there was no shenanigans in those days with what's your number (laughs) your number didn't come up or anything like that so i spent a long time being on competitions rarely as myself (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Mainly as characters and you know, problem programs and singing programs and all sorts of stuff. And then I alighted on The Jewel in the Crown, which was a Sunday morning program presented by a man called Sandy Webster. It was current affairs, kind of what's on your mind. What's on your mind this morning? Come on and call the line now and ventilate your grievance. He used to say that. Come on, ventilate your grievance on the air. He was an old hack. He was clearly an old inky-fingered hack who ended up on the radio, on Radio 4, this commercial station. And so I thought, this is fantastic. And you could call and then call over and then you could call again. They put you on again. Clearly, they weren't inundated with calls. Now, I know, I know that phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> so they put you on the air and these, oh, I remember being, oh, I'm a self-confessed vandal, you know. Oh, I didn't care. There's no, there's no community centres. There's not enough community centres in Edinburgh. I've got nothing else to do. And then said, oh, my life, my life's ruined. Are you okay, dear? I know. No, listen, don't worry. And then there was um, social workers and, oh, everything, everything. And then I got my friends on board, Ian, Ian Glenn, the actor now, and Robert Harley, the writer. And we did it every week. And we, you know, we, we populated and we dominated. And improved, I should imagine. Oh, listen, after the first week that I'd done all the characters, because it was very quick. They had to fill. And literally, I was putting the phone down, dialing again as somebody else, and then put on the air. <laughs> literally. And they were thinking, great, this programme's really popular. We're getting some great guests. Exactly. And the week after the first week, and I told my friends about this, I said, look, I found this programme called Dial Webster on a Sunday morning. Ian, Robert, listen, this is great. This is our Sunday's made going ahead. Mm. And then the week after I'd done my first one, in which I'd been all the characters... He started the show saying, last week was a remarkable programme. Thank you, one and all. And I thought, oh, that's perfect. Thank you, <laughs> one and all. And he said, we had a self-confessed vandal. We had an old woman in Edinburgh whose life had been blighted by vandals. We had a man calling up who was objecting to the visit of Giscard d'Estaing to Edinburgh <laughs> in, in the strongest possible terms. We, and he listed all the calls I'd done. And it, it obviously, you know, got away with it and been convincing and they, they loved it. I taped it, put it on cassette, took it into school on the Monday 
and played it in the classroom. And people, people were hanging out the windows listening to it. This was a great thing for self-esteem. This was fantastic. Eventually, we kind of got rumbled by parents who said, this is not good. And so we had to do it rather more on the sly. But there was one occasion that um, I was kind of, there was a touch of kamikaze about it. My parents were in the garden and they were pruning the roses. And I took the radio out and I put the radio beside them surreptitiously. And I came back in and I called Dial Webster. And they said, on line one, there was a scare about rabies reaching Edinburgh. <laughs> oh, I remember. God, it was terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Coming from the continent, yeah. you know. And uh, a vet has called us to advise on rabies <laughs> and what we should do. So I said, oh, it's morning, Sandy. It's a terrible disease, Sandy. Just how bad is it? What a terrible, 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 terrible disease. I don't know, it really is. Well, is there anything anything you can do about it? Yes, there's only one sure thing you can do about it. Uh, Dettol. Um, <laughs> fill a bath. Fill a bath and pour in half a bottle of Dettol, and that will give you some level of uh, immunity. And we carried on. And, of course, there was a kind of gullibility about it because, if you you know, it's like if you if you sound plausible, you've been in this for yeah. this is your career. You sound plausible. People believe it. And then I said, I've got, I've got to go. I said, I've got a diuretic horse to deal with. But it's a terrible, 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 terrible disease. And my mum was coming in at that time, and I heard her just saying rhetorically, there's a dreadful man on the radio. <laughs> and then she came in, and I went, da-da, that was me. And I had that parents in. The half of them were saying, that's terrible, you mustn't do that. And the other half were kind of laughing and saying, yeah. that's, that's fantastic. Isn't that interesting that your love of radio comes from talk radio? But yeah, but I loved getting friends in my room and saying, you've got to hear this record, and that's all radio is, isn't it? I want you to hear this record because I love it. But now on radio is, I want you to hear this record because I've got a printout here of the records that I've got to play. <laughs> Did because... you ever have the licence to do that then? Did you ever professionally have the licence to just say, right, I'm going to play whatever I want to play? Yeah, I did. I did a show on late night radio for five years on Radio 1. I used to come in and... I um, looked at the running order and it was mine to change. And I went, you know what? Tonight I'm going to play Panic in Detroit by David Bowie, Rainy Day Woman by Bob Dylan. I think I'm going to play by Elvis. I think I'm going to play, I think I, I feel like a bit of Marvin Gaye. Do you know what? <laughs> Bung a bit of Pavarotti in there. So I literally just played what I felt. I got so much license. And it was a desk lamp, and we smoked in those days, and there was a smoke swirling around, and there was no one else in the building. And Peel was on before me at one stage and after me at one stage, and Bob Harris was on after me. And John and Bob became really, really close friends. And John, um, I remember coming in one night, and it was just after Hillsborough, and I came in, and they were adjacent studios, the kind of mirror image studios. And I, I looked next door, and John had just started, he was just starting a show, and he started his show and he played You'll Never Walk Alone by Aretha Franklin, mm. which is a killer version. It's just amazing. And he was just, you know, sitting there with tears rolling down his face. And I'll never forget that moment. So powerful, just knowing what to play, just knowing what was right, mm. what was right at that moment, given what had happened um, to play. He was a funny man. Did you ever meet him? Yeah. Strangely enough, he's one of the very few people. You'll remember the show that we used to do on Radio 4, Radioactive. Yeah. That yeah. I did with Angus Deaton and Philip Pope and 
Helen Atkinson Wood and the great Jeffrey Perkins. There we are to give them a name check. Mm. Um, but uh, John Peel was one of the very few guests that we had as a real person coming on. And I interviewed him as my silly sort of alter ego of Martin Brown, mm, who yeah. basically questioned him about what did he feed his horses mm. if he was a jockey. And he just did that. No, 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 I'm, I'm not that sort of jockey. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Right, because um, I thought you were. Uh, I thought you were. Uh, you were a jockey. Says on my my notes. That, um, so I just did a really inept interview with him, and he was very, very funny and very good on it. At the end of the sketch, Jeffrey said, "Ladies and gentlemen, thank you, Mr. John Peel." We took a break in recording, and everybody applauded him. And I said, "Yeah, thanks, John. Yeah." So now, fuck off. Which he went okay and walked off the stage, and he got a laugh, you know, and. And then afterwards, I came off to say what an honour it was to have worked with him. And he had gone. <laughs> and I, I've always regretted not meeting him again because I, I wanted to say to him, you didn't go because I told you to fuck off. I was just joking. You do know that, don't you? <laughs> it's, I know. That possible thing is sort of lingering yeah, yeah, forever. Yeah. Did he really think? Yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, It's still with me. I'm embarrassed by it. No, he honestly, I give you his blessing. Okay. It's fine. He was a funny mm. guy, though. He was, he could make you laugh uh, till you were crying. <laughs> so that was it. That was my late night radio thing. But joining Radio One, you know, from local radio, then Capital, very briefly on Capital, mm. and then joining Radio One, that was Radio One at its peak. Absolutely, yeah. But, you know, 11 million people listened to Simon Bates. You know, these massive figures, Mike Reed, Gary Davis, and DLT. Obviously, there's a lot of baggage with Mm. some names now. When I joined, I did a photo shoot with Savile. Yes. Savile was leaving, and I was joining, and the shtick was, Jim fixes it for (laughs) young DJ. That was the press release. (laughs) Strange man, though, wasn't he? Strange, yes, but it wasn't obvious what came out. No. I mean, there were lots of theories. I remember people used to say to me, oh, he's a, he's a necrophiliac. And you say, fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> no, he's not. Fuck off. It's absurd, isn't it? You know, I remember even at school people saying, oh, you know, you said Jimmy Savile, the phrase, yeah, sleeps with dead people, came out. Yes. We didn't know the word <laughs> necrophiliac. And it was such an absurd idea. <laughs> exactly. It was cover. What a monster. What an absolute monster. Yeah. That was the only time I met him. And then I was obviously overawed. It's like it wasn't the first yeah. time I met Alan Freeman. I just thought, oh, what a wonderful man. I was kind of overawed by this presence. It's kind of like, I don't know, meeting Satan, incredibly charismatic, but something unsettling as well. <laughs> yeah. And he took me to one side mm. as we were having the photo shoot. I'm just remembering. And he said, um, he said, Young man, you have just obtained the keys to open the Bank of England. Now, I loved radio because of that ability to communicate, to speak, and to reach out to people. The last thing of my mind was obtaining the keys to open the Bank of England. It was like such a mercenary idea and, and, and focus. This is, my, yeah. this is my photo shoot joining Radio 1. And it was mm. it's so reductionist, what he'd said. I remember thinking at the time, what a strange thing to say. But no, it's all those people... All those weird people. Amazing, though. What an extraordinary journey to make in so few years. I know. University, then local radio, then bang, Capital Radio, Radio 1. Top of the pops. And then, you know, yeah. I remember 91 flying to Long Island via New York, flying over there to interview the Rolling Stones. Wow. One by one in a hotel suite. There was the Steel Wheels tour. Here's me and, and Keith from that trip. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, Nikki, you're so young. What now or then? Look at that. (laughs) 
Yeah, look at that. Thank you. There we are. I can absolutely understand why you love radio and why you'd want to put it into the time capsule. It's such a mm. massive part of your life and also something you wouldn't want to be without. No. I mean, you're right to say there is an irony that I do something national phone-in and I started off being on phone-ins but being as a <laughs> hoax call. I'm just trying to think if I've ever been hoaxed myself. I'm going to warn you that uh, sometime very soon you'll have an old general phone you up and talk to you about the situation in the Middle East. <laughs> And he'll be talking to you very seriously <laughs> about this all, young Nicholas. And then he'll say that the answer, clearly, is um, Detto. <laughs> That's right. I'm just going to hold Detto. back and one day I'm going to get you. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. OK, so radio goes into the time capsule. So what's number three? Right, we're going to take a short ad break here, but we'll be back before you can say Jack Robinson. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome back. Okay, admit it. Did you say Jack Robinson? Oh, just me then. Right, let's get back to Nicky Campbell before we realise how sad that is and find out what else he would put in his time capsule. Well, um, this relates a little bit to mental health. You don't mind if I do a serious one? No. All right, well, uh, the next thing would be Charlie Brooker. The satirist and writer, mm -hmm. right? And I have suffered from terrible depression since I can remember, probably since I was a teenager. And I have bipolar type 2, affective disorder type 2. And um, I just think that he became slightly, I don't know, he, he gave me some terrible reviews and thought I was sort of, you know, something unsettling about me. And he, he sort of focused on it and something that for him didn't ring true. And he just really took against me. And he, he did these 
reviews. And then he did some stuff online. He made a video online. I think he done it on television that I was I was the devil. And then I was at a really low ebb. I mean, he's brilliant. Look, you know, Charlie is a brilliant writer. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Black Mirror is phenomenal. He has done some incredible stuff. He's one of the greatest. But I came off the air one day. No, actually, we'd had a text when I was on the air and said, well, that, you know, Charlie Brooker really gave you the full treatment last night. And I thought, well, what's that? So I went home and watched it. It was a kind of comedy show. And he just laid into me and had this sort of string of insults. And that really hit me as that kind of, do I, I'm a, you know, he's right. You know, he's right. Uh-huh. I don't deserve to be here. And he's rumbled me. He's got me. And I don't really know who I am. And he's, he's, he's sussed it out. He's like pointing the finger and everyone's laughing. And um, I think one of the words was wank stain. And it, it sent me into, I was in bed for two days after it. Mm. And it sent me into a really, really low ebb. And I was, I was suffering at the time badly anyway. And um, that when my teenagers were, were kind of a bit younger and finding some of the stuff he'd done online as well. Now, I can take it. I mean, of course you can take it. People having a go and having a bit of crack and, and, uh, and, and insulting you. It, it goes with the game. But this was visceral really really visceral and really vicious and really really horrible and the more disappointing because you know he wasn't just some some twat <laughs> he's really highly regarded brilliant writer mm. and um really really hit me hard it might sound a bit pathetic but it just no, I, was, no. I was in a bad place at the time and um i just think you've got to be you've got to be think about things you know, and with social media having amplified all this stuff, if he'd done a tweet and said that on social media, people would think he was just some kind of, you know, some some weirdo in a flat somewhere with a, a keyboard mm. warrior. But I think we've got to be very, very careful about that sort of thing in the public space. Yeah. I mean, I can understand comically how pushing something to the limit mm. is quite often a good way of making it funnier. Mm. But generally you would do with that with something where what you were pushing to the limit was clearly absurd. So it was something that nobody would actually believe. In a way, the laugh is on you because of what you're saying. You're being absurd in Mm. suggesting that these things may be true. And that may be why the audience were laughing. They may have been laughing at the fact that they went, well, clearly that's not true. But you're absolutely right, not thinking about how that would affect you, how that would come across to you is, uh, is a mistake, I think. Or anyone, if you do stuff like that, because mm-hmm. nobody knows what anyone's really going through. No, it, it was it was really really vicious. The audience went sort of go for, I think I, I sensed because my God, I watched it several times. Mm. You can't not watch it. I think there was a sense of the audience about whoa whoa whoa, <laughs> what's, yeah, where's this coming from? Mm-hmm. There was an element of that in it as well. Mm. And I wrote about this in the book. I didn't name him in the book, but I thought I would um, talk about him to you because. It's uh, it's not something I've spoken about before. I did speak about it in the book. I just said it was a comedian who said that, and I explained how hard it hit me. Mm. Now, maybe people listening now will think I'm being a bit kind of, oh, God, you know. No, I think if you've really suffered from this, and this was an incredibly painful thing, and mm. still clearly is, mm. then it was a mistake. Yeah, it's... Um, no, it's not, it's not something I think about every day, but I think about it in the context of having just written the book and having written about my mental health and remembering how I felt, remembering what it was, what it was like and having that whole adoption imposter thing. And I, I'm really not, I'm not worth it. I'm not worthy because I, I was rejected 
And I don't, I'm not seeing Charlie Brooker as a proxy mother here, (laughs) rejecting me again. (laughs) But I just feel it's another, it's another rejection and you deserve to be rejected. Oh Lord, yes. Mm. I can see how painful that would be. Mm. You, You actually have the right to point it out. That's the thing. That's what I'm doing, yeah. You have the right to say, look, you have to consider the person you're saying this about. Mm. Yeah, call me all sorts of stuff, but that sort of concerted and persistent uh, kind of thing. And that when you get that kind of, when I'm doing Top of the Pops on a Friday night on BBC Four and I see it and I most people are just lovely, and then you get a, a text saying, you're a twat then and you're a twat now. That's fine. I don't mind that, you know. No. It's like, thanks for getting in touch, you know. (laughs) Thanks for for reaching out. I've always wondered what you thought. (laughs) (laughs) But the great thing about Twitter is people criticise it a lot, but it's it's actually quite Mm self-pleasing. If somebody does something like that, other people kind of you know, will will leap to other people's defence and say, well, that's unreasonable they're saying that. That's, that's stupid saying that. And I think that does happen on Twitter for all the criticism and for all the flack it gets. You know? mm. So that's it. That's him. That's it. Said it. Spoken about it for the first time. I want to say that, you know, I will never, this is the truth, I will never, ever be as talented or as, as brainy or as articulate as Charlie Brooker. I will never be, but on on that occasion, a few other occasions, it was bad. Mm. So I shall put that into the time capsule as a thing that you want to get rid of from your life. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. That's gone. It's gone. <laughs> You'll try to look it up one day. You, When you're feeling a bit down, you're thinking, I'm going to punish myself some more and watch this one more time. And it won't be there. Mm. It's gone. And so we've got two items left. Okay. Um, we have a little place in the West Highlands of Scotland. It was a manse that was built in 1865 and we bought it when it was in not a very good state of repair and we didn't have much money and we've done it up over the years and it's it's a lovely special place for us and it was an old free church manse of course the free church of scotland they're not going to be appearing anytime soon at pride Uh, (laughs) they don't have a float they're very austere they make the Presbyterians look like a conga line. Anyway, we have the original bath. It was a lovely old freestanding bath. And Tina, my wife, said, we've got to get that re-enameled. That is absolutely lovely. That bath has been here forever and it will stay forever. So we got a man in and he re-enameled it and he was absolutely superb, a real old craftsman. And it was just one of those things, after it's done, you just want to look at it. It's so beautiful. <laughs> beautifully done so there it was the bath fantastic now i was chatting to the aforementioned crofter and his wife ian and kath one afternoon now you remember they had a dog called roy and before that they had a dog called roy Um, (laughs) so i was chatting to them one night and i said that bath it's beautiful. We just started running. Oh, that bath can tell a few stories. It's in a few minutes and it's time. <laughs> and I remember I mind when um, there was no hotel. It was burned down in a fire. I remember when Bing Crosby came and stayed in the house. He was on a golfing tour. <laughs> he stayed in the house with my sister, Catherine. She went and uh, drew his bath for him. Well, that was the bath. It's been there. That's the same bath. I'm thinking. What? <laughs> Bing Crosby bathed in our bath, right? <laughs> oh, my God. This is incredible. And so I went to town. 
Next time I was in Notting Hill, I went to this shop, was selling vinyl. I got two Bing Crosby vinyl LPs. We had them framed. Bing Crosby bathed here. There it is. <laughs> Round the bar. And we say when we're in the house now, we say, I'm, I'm off for a bath. <laughs> Isn't that great? Fantastic. No, it's like my friend Simon, Simon Donald, who was in a film with Peter Cushing just before Peter Cushing died. But he acted with Peter Cushing, who was in A Chump at Oxford with Laurel and Hardy, right? And so I would say, it's like I've acted with someone who acted with someone who acted with Laurel and Hardy, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I bet you can do a few of those. You can. I can. Go on then, come on. Well, okay, then uh, Donald Sindon's first job mm. was with Donald Warfit. <gasps> Actor-manager. So that's one degree. I worked with Donald Sindon. He worked with Donald Warford. Victorian actor-manager. He used to do the famous curtain speeches. Next week, we will be doing Othello. Uh, my wife will be playing Desdemona. And somebody shouted from the audience, Your wife's a whore! <laughs> and he shouted back, Nevertheless, she will be playing... <laughs> <laughs> In fact, I, I'm going to tell you this story. Donald Sinder told me a story about Donald Warford. He got his very first job there, straight out of RADA. He met him on the train, and he said, you'll be my page, follow me wherever I go, don't get in my fucking light. <laughs> and so Donald Sinder got dressed well before the start, and as Donald Warford came out of the dressing room, he followed him. And when he went on stage, he followed him. And he stood behind him with the banner, and then when he exited... He followed him, and he followed him everywhere, until at one point he thought, I'm desperate to go to the toilet. And he looked and thought, well, there's a big scene going on. I'm, I'm bound to have time. So he rushed to the toilet, rushed back again, and was standing in the wings and saw Donald Warford on the other side of the stage, just about to come on. He thought, oh, no, oh, no. So he thought, it's all right. As he comes on that side, I'll come on this side, and I'll stand behind him. It'll be fine. So Donald Warford entered. He walked on from his side of the stage and Donald Warford said to him, Not in Desdemona's death scene, you cunt! <laughs> and that was his first theatrical experience. Yeah. The C word. The C I've, word. I've heard it used many times. I've said it by mistake on the radio when I was introducing... <laughs> when I was introducing... Um, an interview with the master, for it was she, she was called Georgie, for the master of the, the West Kent Hunt. Oh, um, Lord. That's all over YouTube. When I, I, I also did one on Jeremy Hunt, too. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy Hunt was coming down the steps. It was when Trump came. And the line I had to say was, at the bottom of the steps waiting for him is the Foreign Secretary, Jeremy Hunt, and the Chief Constable. Oh. for wherever it was. So I had Jeremy Hunt and Chief Constable in proximity to each other, so that went. <laughs> but when I said, uh, here's Georgie Worsley from the West Kent Hunt, Kent, 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 Kent <laughs> West Kent Hunt, interestingly, interestingly, she went, oh, it's a bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? No, it but interestingly, I said, right then, I said, I'm so sorry. I, mm. I apologise to anyone listening. That was... Genuine mistake, and I've, I'm absolutely mortified, but I am really, really sorry. And I carried on with the interview thinking, it's over. It's back to phoning up radio stations and pretending to be vets. That's it. That's it. We didn't get one complaint. Not one complaint, because nipped it in the bud yeah. with the apology. 
Yes. I mean, who could be angry about that? Yeah. yeah. We're very, very posh people swear, like Wolfert. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? It, it doesn't sound like swearing sometimes, does it? It <laughs> no. sounds like a continuation of their mellifluous prose, doesn't it? Uh, yes, a continuation, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry about that. So you fell in love. You must have fallen in love with the... Uh, with that sort of area of Scotland. You went there as a boy, didn't you? Went there as a boy. Um, I know what my last one will be. I was going to do The Ring of Bright Water Mm -hmm. because I love that book and it took me to that area, the book by Gavin Maxwell. And they showed us the film at school and it was, you know, the end when Midge the Otter gets killed by the roadmender. Oh, horrible. And we were only 12 years old when we watched that film in school. Those weird people, many of whom I'm sure were still suffering from post-traumatic stress from World War II, our teachers. They got us in and they made us watch it where they pulled the blinds down and went, what's happening, what's happening, what's happening? Oh, we're seeing a film. And they showed us that film. And I remember the sobbing and the heaving shoulders and the weeping at that particular moment. Mm. I don't know why they did that to us. But anyway, I read the book. It was on the syllabus. Absolutely loved it. And I proposed to my wife where the Ring of Bright Water was, Camus Fiana or Sandeg in the book. And that was the ring. That was the ring. And I proposed to her there. Where's my ring? We're we're here. We're here. (laughs) A poet, but a cheapskate. (laughs) (laughs) So that's a beautiful part of our lives, that. Mm. But I was thinking, you just reminded me of, and I've quickly substituted, you've just reminded me of why I love the Highlands. I love the Highlands because from maybe one, two years old, we went on family holidays. Mm. And we had a little cottage called Cobble Cottage. And then Dad's mum died, and with the bequest, they bought a bigger cottage. I loved the area. I loved running through the ferns and smelling the heather and swimming in the burns. I loved it. I, I loved it. I adore the smell and the feel and the sounds of the highlands. But what I really loved about that particular area was Loch Ness. I had at the time, and for many years, an obsession with the Loch Ness monster which at the time, of course, was pretty big. This was in the 60s and 70s. I don't mean pretty big as in, um, you know, it was a behemoth. I mean, (laughs) it was big news. There was the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau, earnest young men and women in horn-rimmed spectacles. David James, the Tory MP, was the head of the Loch Ness Investigation Bureau. Nobody blinked at that. And I knew lots of people. My dad mixed with people. I remember Isabel at the garage who smelt of cigarettes and Reeve Gauche talking about the time she was alongside the Loch's Edge and she'd seen it herself. And lots of people, there was a couple called Fatima and Basil Carey, an old post-colonial couple, kind of like Trevor Howard and Celia Johnson in that film a few years ago, coming out of India, and they came out of India and ended up in Glen Urquhart. And they swore beautifully. And they claimed to have seen it waddling across the road, but they were perpetually pissed. But this was beguiling for me. I remember being in the boat on the loch with the ghillie, the chief ghillie. He'd done a deal whereby he took us out fishing and then Dad bought him a steak and we all had a nice steak fry up at the side of the loch and, and a dram. I remember saying to him as a little boy, um, plucking up the courage, they were in the boat on the loch. And I said, have you ever, have you ever seen them in the monster? He went, oh, no, no, I've never seen any monster. <laughs> I've seen any monster. I've seen something very strange <laughs> on six occasions. <laughs> um, and so I thought, oh, my God, that's and you know, reasonable people were talking about having seen stuff. I mean, you know, geologically, it's a fascinating place. It's 26 miles long, a mile wide at the widest point. So there's some interesting stuff going on on the water anyway. So 
when something gets legs, as it were, or flippers, you know, it really goes. And it was, of course, it was it was good business for the area, <clears> but I knew people. My, my aunts said they saw it. I had two twin aunts called Ethel and Beatrice, my dad's sisters, who till their dying days said that they saw it when they were girls. It's big, this hump going through the water. Um, all right, there is no monster, but there's stuff. People see, see stuff. There's the famous picture of the fin, isn't there? Yeah, the Rhine's Edgerton flipper photograph. Now... Early 70s, when it came out, and I found out that they had the Rhines, the Academy of Applied Science had moved in from America, and that sounded just fucking fantastic. The Academy of Applied Science, Bob Rhines and Edgerton. Bob Rhines looked like a retired astronaut or a Democrat senator. He had that kind of look. And they got these images over, I think, a couple of years. And the first one was the Rhines Edgerton flipper thing. Now, Sir Peter Scott got involved in it, David Attenborough. There's something in the air then. Anyway, when the flipper photograph came out, I thought, that's it. Hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> that is the proof. At last, the zoological establishment can take this seriously because I was forever worried that it was a dwindling population. There wouldn't be a viable breeding population. So there we were. A couple of years after that, their efforts to give it scientific credibility had foundered, and I found myself at a party, and it was like my dream was shattered as well. I really thought that would be the turning point. And I found myself at a party given by a man who owned stuff. It was on the hill, and it was a big 60s, 70s, massive glass window dream house on the hill looking over Loch Ness. Mm. And my dad knew him. He was called Gordon, and he was gay, and had a boyfriend, and it was all very, at the time, my parents didn't give a shit, and I remember them not giving a shit about that. And there was a man there, and I realized that was Bob Rhines. And he wandered off on his own to the window. He was staring out the window, and I sort of trailed him, you know, surreptitiously, I sort of trailed him towards the window, and I was close enough, and I heard what he said. He looked out the window, he was looking onto the lock, and he went, where are you? Oh, that's Spielberg. Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. What a thing to have witnessed. Mm. That man's passion just wouldn't mm. leave him. No, and it was crestfallen, though. He hadn't managed to prove it. I think the, the photographs had been subconsciously, willfully enhanced ever so slightly, so that a, maybe a leaf came to look like a flipper, mm. the flipper of a plesiosaur. But that moment was a powerful one. Yeah, well, that sort of passion, mm. wrong or right, is inspiring, isn't it? And dreams that something you'd love to be real is real. That was his life's purpose, his, his mission. Well, the great thing is that you're now going to be able to talk to his relatives and say, guess what? I've got the Loch Ness Monster in my time capsule. <laughs> so there we are. That's it. We've put all the things in the time capsule. We'll seal it up. I'll bury it for you, if you like. Mm. Or you can put it under your bed. <laughs> OK. <laughs> well, that was an experience. That was great. Thank you very much indeed. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Nikki Campbell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can subscribe to it on Acast or your own favourite podcast provider. And we'd really appreciate it if you would rate us and maybe leave a short review. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. The theme tune is by Pass the Peas Music and is available to stream on Spotify. This has been a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton-Stevens. Oh, what a coincidence. That's my surname as well. Ah, well, as Stephen Wright said, it's a small world, but I wouldn't want to have to paint it. 
Or as Disney said, if you've ever been on the endless ride at one of their theme parks, it's a small world after all. It's a small world after all. It's a small world after all. It's a small, small world. It's a small world after all. It's a small world after all. It's a small world after all. It's a small, small world. It's a small world after all. It's a small world after all. It's a sm- yes. I think I've got the message. Oh, that ride goes on forever. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.